Good afternoon, folks. It's Wednesday. At least I think it's Wednesday. It's all starting to blur together a wee bit, so it is. But uh, thank you for joining with us again. We're going to be going to Luke 19 this afternoon as we just continue our study in the life of Christ. Now, the plan is to cover the first part of chapter 19 with you and then track the triumphant entry into Jerusalem in the second half of the chapter on Sunday, which of course is Palm Sunday. And then next week, coming up to the crucifixion, we'll do a video each day next week, hopefully. Maybe not Easter Saturday, but next week uh, we'll try and give you plenty of material to feed off as we approach Easter. Some of you will have had big plans for Easter, uh, whether you're in our church or a different church, uh, with a big production or a big evangelism push or a concert or something. Uh, I love our testimony service on Easter Sunday evenings. Some of you may be looking forward to just the caravan and the break. Whatever way you've done Easter before, it's going to be different this year. I hope you can find 15-20 minutes at least a day to help spend it with us uh, over this difficult time. We're now coming to the focal point though of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we spend four chapters across the four books dealing with 30 years of Jesus' life, yet 85 chapters dealing with the last three, three and a half years. Of those 85 chapters, 29 cover the final week of Christ's life. 13 chapters deal with the last 24 hours before his death. Each gospel writer understands something. The grand finale of Christ's life isn't about his teachings. It's not about his miracles. It's not about his good example. It's about his death on the cross and his resurrection. So let's read about that final journey into Jerusalem. And to do that, he's to go through another city of Jericho and to meet one more person. Let's read Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. Did you know that Josephus, the historian, called Jericho the fattest city in the land? Now, what he meant was not that people there were obese, but that it was wealthy, prosperous, growing. That expression is actually starting to come back into trend. You know, things are P-H-A-T. It's fat. It's cool. Well, Jericho was fat and it was like the prosperous New Yorker Dubai of the ancient world. But here we meet a wealthy man, Zacchaeus. Now, in the last chapter that we skipped over, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and only he went away very sad. Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go into heaven. The disciples then asked, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Amen for that. And so the rich young ruler and this statement of Jesus shows, yes, it's difficult but now we'll say that even though it's difficult, it's not impossible for a rich man to find his way into the kingdom. Verse 3. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, come down quick. I must be a guest at your home today. See, Zacchaeus here has a problem. He's short. Now, I'm five foot five and a half and that half's very important just ask Mark Newell he'll tell you that half inch is very important but according to some studies the average height of an adult back then was five foot so I had been considered tall then so I'm not short I'm just a classic model but the average was five foot and if Zacchaeus is considered short by those standards what must he be four foot four foot five 
And he's a tax collector, and we know that these guys are totally despised. They work for the enemy, and I'll not cover all that ground again. But here's what's interesting. The word Zacchaeus, the name Zacchaeus means righteous one, pure, innocent one. Yet he's a tax collector, which means nobody sees him as righteous or pure or innocent. Anything but that. It's an ironic name like Little John from Robin Hood. But he's also the chief tax collector, which means he's the one who's setting the rates around the place. He's very wealthy. He's taking a cut from all the, all the other local tax collectors. He's very wealthy, working in a fat city. So three things that strike me about him. Number one, he's courageous. To go out in public without security, to be out when anyone could have had a go at him, that's brave. I'm sure most of you, like me, would uh, love to have a few words with a tax man who you know is ripping you off to fund a terrorist uh, nation like the Romans, an encouraging and invading force. The second thing about him is that he's childlike. Not many grown men run around a city climbing trees, certainly not government officials. Would you love to see Michael Gove up a tree? Uh, Boris probably would live up a tree, but that's a different matter. So he's like a kid kind of watching a parade looking over in, into the tree. Third thing, though, he's curious. He, he's doing all this because he wants to see Jesus. He's not necessarily interested in meeting him or talking to him. He just wants to see what the fuss is all about from a safe distance, from a safe hiding spot. But Jesus stops under the tree, looks up and calls him by name. Notice Jesus knows the name of the man, of the people that no one else has time for. He speaks with love to the people who were deemed unlovable. Jesus wanted to spend time with a man who'd been outlawed from worshipping in the church, who couldn't offer sacrifices. This is also the only time in scripture we hear of Jesus inviting himself to someone's house. It's bold. But I kind of like his style. I like the fact that Jesus invited himself into someone's home for a meal. It reminds me of Revelation 3. Remember when it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and sup with them. The idea is having a meal with them. It speaks of a close friendship. It speaks of relationship, of fellowship. So Jesus does that here with Zacchaeus. He says, I know you're down and out. I know you're not what you're supposed to be. But I want to have a relationship with you. I know what kind of man you are. But I want a relationship with you. Verse 6. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be a guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Look, either way, this was probably the best meal Zacchaeus ever had. First of all, how fun would it be making something for Jesus? What even would you make for, for Jesus for dinner? But whatever he had for, for Jesus, bread was probably included in the menu. He was face to face though with the bread of life himself who would remove hunger from his life, who would completely satisfy. But as we saw, not everyone appreciated Jesus spending time with Zacchaeus. But Jesus loves people. Here's Jesus loving the chief tax collector, hanging out with a traitor. Who does that? Jesus does that. Jesus loves all people. No one else was going to do this, but Jesus would. And here's something to maybe make a note of. Whenever you attempt to do something for God, whenever you endeavor to do a work that would please the Lord, let me just warn you that sometimes there will be people who will misunderstand, who will malign you, who will criticize you, or will suggest a different way of going. You can't please all the people all the time. And so I've got to tell you, you've got to come to a place where you just don't care about what other people think. Jesus didn't care. He kind of just says, well, so what? The Bible says in Proverbs, the fear of man brings a snare. 
I wonder how many things that we fail to do for God or how many times we fail to speak up for God because we were worried about what other people might think. Verse 8. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and says, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Now, he's not paying out money to earn salvation. This isn't happening so that he could seal the deal. He's doing this because he is saved. It's the response of a man who's been changed. God in us will change us. It says in James that faith without works is dead. But here's what's interesting. According to the law of Moses, Paying four times the amount is, is overkill. The law says that if you took something and you voluntarily, out of guilt or whatever, decided to own up, you had to pay the money back that you'd stole plus 20%. So if you stole £100, you pay back 120 and then you make a sin offering at the temple. If you get caught, you have to pay double. So the fine becomes £200 and, a, and an offering at the temple. But if you steal something and can't restore it, so say you take an animal and, and you killed it or it died, then and only then do you pay four times the amount because you can't repay or restore what has been taken. So the fact that case says, I'm going to pay four times the amount of what I've stole, it's an admission of saying, I've ruined people's lives. I can't make this better for some people. So I'm going to pay the stiffest amount that I can under the law of Moses. I am fully conscious of the impact my sin has made on people. Verse 9, Jesus responds, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save those, those who are lost. That's one of the best verses in all of the New Testament. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. You should have it marked. You should have it underlined. You should have it memorized. The son of man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, allow me this. In a spiritual sense, before God, we are all short people. None of us can measure up to the standard that God has set. So in a spiritual sense, we, we all kind of are short in stature. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the story of Zacchaeus, it's a precious story. A short man who has fallen short in everyone's eyes. Yet the only person who matters is Christ. And he turned this man's life around. He has come to seek and to save the people who are lost. But... Let's move on. Jesus will tell him a parable now, which is very similar to, but is distinctive from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Here, there's more servants. There's 10 servants in this story, not three, but there's much less money involved. But the lessons are similar. So let's read because he's now trying to teach this crowd who'd been moaning that he dared to love Zacchaeus. But he's not the kind of Messiah that they've been expecting. He's a Messiah that's not come to overthrow Rome, but to lay down his life in love. Not to destroy empires, but to seek what is lost. Verse 12, he says, A nobleman was called away to a distant, a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Okay, so here's something that's fascinating. He's talking about himself here, but this is the only time that we know of that Jesus bases a parable on a true story. Everybody listening to this in Jericho on his way to Jer or on the way to Jerusalem would understand that this is a true story. Who ruled the world at this time? The Roman go government, the Roman Empire. And so because they were kind of rulers over everything that was happening, no one could rule provincially area from to area without their say. So so for them to rule, they had to receive the kingdom from Caesar. So Herod the Great from the Christmas story. Give three of his sons rulership of the king, his kingdom. 
but they had to go to Rome first to get the seal of approval from Caesar Augustus and to receive that kingdom so they could reign. However, the people of Judea, where, where Jesus is now, sent a delegation of 50 men before Caesar to say, look, we don't want this man to reign over us. We hate him. We don't want him as our king. Yet Caesar Augustus gave them the kingdom anyway, the inheritance of the kingdom. But what he didn't do was give them the designation of king. And so when Jesus gave this parable of a man going to receive a kingdom, every single brain in this crowd would have responded going, okay, I know what he's talking about because this is recent history to them. So let's pick it up again. Verse 13. Before he left, he called this nobleman, called 10 of his servants together and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, 10 minas, saying, invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want him to be our king. So it, again, it sounds very familiar. Now, a pound of silver uh, or a mina is about three months wages for a labourer. It's not an insignificant amount of money, but compared to a talent from the other parables, well, one mina is about a sixtieth of a talent. So it's a lot less than, than the other parable. So a lump sum nonetheless was given to them to invest. Here's a man who has to go far away, who will return as a king, even though he's unpopular. Verse 15 says, after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. So 10 people were given money, but we only read about three of them reporting back. Verse 16, the first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made 10 times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. You'll be the governor of 10 cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money, made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said, you will be governor over five cities. See, all ten servants were given the same amount. They could have done whatever they wanted with it. We know that these two men made the most of it. Different degrees of success, but success nonetheless. Well done. Here's what I believe it's speaking to. All of us have been given the same treasure of the gospel. It's been entrusted to us. Second Corinthians 4 says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He's given us a treasure, the treasure of the good news of Jesus. It's our privilege to invest that treasure and to be about the master's business so that more and more may enter the kingdom of heaven. Somebody once said that the most selfish thing you can do is to be content to go to heaven alone says well i'm going so i don't need to worry about anyone else i don't need to share the gospel i don't need to let people know but actually we should be saying i want to bring people with me so, so follow me with this how many apostles followed jesus initially there's 12 by the time we get to the upper room after the the crucifixion there was 120 there was 10 times that uh by the time jesus ascended into heaven by the end of acts chapter 2 there was 3000 added by acts 4 there was 5000 souls added eventually one of the leaders of the church one of the leaders said to the church you have filled jerusalem with your doctrine what a wonderful compliment that is i wish they could say that uh AC has filled the peninsula with the doctrine of Christ. Amen to that. So from 12 to 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 more to filling a capital city, that's good stewardship. You take the treasure of the gospel and you get it out to as many people as possible. What's the reward? What's the reward for being a faithful servant? Well, more work, right? You'll be a governor over 10 cities, over five cities. 
anyone who's a manager will understand this. If you've got somebody working for you and whatever they do turns to gold, they, they attack it with a, a vengeance and, and they're going to work hard on it. They put the work in and, and, and they're, they're careful and they're diligent. Pretty soon what you'll do is you'll keep giving work to them because you know that they're going to do it well. They're going to make it happen. They're going to make me as a manager look really good. So I'm going to give them more work. And so for us in the kingdom of God, we're going to have the privilege of the kingdom age serving alongside God and in a capacity that is a reward for us based upon what we have done with what we've been given here and now. Let's go to verse 20. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of the money and said, Master, I hid this, your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with. Taking what isn't yours and investing crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and invests and harvest crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten interest on it. What's sad is what the servant said, yes. Because what it shows is that he didn't really know who his master was. That's what's really sad. He says, I'm afraid of you. Well, this isn't like a healthy fear. This is sort of like a slavish fear more than a loving faith. See, there is a kind of healthy fear that you can have of God. If you've ever heard that phrase, but you don't know what it means, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, the fear of the Lord in the Bible isn't like a fear that pushes people away, that people are too scared to even approach him. But rather, the biblical fear of the Lord is a reverential awe that leads to a humble submission to a loving God. And awe that leads to a humble submission to a loving God. That's a healthy fear of the Lord. It's sad that some believers don't have this healthy fear of God. They're just afraid of God. They think that he wants to kick them when they're down. They're scared because they think he's like a lion who's ready to pounce on them or strike them as soon as they step out of line. Instead of saying, oh Lord, I have such an awe for who you are. I love you so much. To look at a landscape or a constellation and say, whoa, he did that. If he can do that, what, what can he do? You get a sense of exactly who it is you're dealing with. You see angels unable to even look at him because of his holiness. And you think, whoa, look who it is that I'm dealing with. It's a fear that says, I'm not going to mess around here. I've I got to think about who, I, who I'm coming to, who I'm representing. I have to be careful here. A child will have a healthy fear of their parents. It's a respect that's based in love. And that's the idea of a healthy fear of the Lord. A.W. Tozer once said, nothing twists and deforms our soul like a low concept of God. See, you can never outgrow your concept of God. If you have a low concept of God, you'll be stuck with a small God and your problems will tar over him. But if you have a high concept of God, then you're going to soar on the wings of eagles with the one who reigns over it all. Now, there's more to the story, but let's just pause here for now. For like the man in this parable, Jesus left this earth after his resurrection and he was not leaving as a king, but he will be returning as one. And when he returns, he will gather his servants around him and ask a very simple question. What did you do with what I left? I give you a vast treasure of the gospel. What did you do with it? I think it's the main question I've been asking people in the church as I've been ringing around and chatting. What have you been doing with yourself? But I mean it a small chat. How are you filling the time? Are you doing okay? Are you bored? Do you need anything? Do you need help? But imagine standing before Christ 
And it's not baby Jesus meek and mild. It's not as a carpenter. It's not the teacher. It's not the friend. But when he comes back as king and asks what we have been doing, it's not small talk. He's asking for us to give an account of what we've done. And like these servants who made a prophet and were given cities to rule, will fulfill the prophecy in Daniel 7 that says, Under the greatness of the kingdoms, under all of heaven, shall be given to the people the saints of the Most High. Or we'll be fulfilling 2 Timothy 2.12 that says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. We'll fulfill Revelation 5.10 that says, He has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. If scripture says it once, it's worth taking note of it. But we see it repeated time and time again. Oh, oh there's um, 1 Corinthians 6 that talks about us judging angels as well. So, so we have to take this seriously. Take the call of the Great Commission seriously because one day the king will say, okay, what have you done with this treasure that I left you? What have you done with the gospel message? Paul tells the Corinthians that a steward must be found faithful. I pray that in these strange times, you will always be found faithful, profitable with family, friends, neighbours, because he's coming back and he's going to come back as king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Easter message doesn't finish with a dead saviour, a martyr who laid down his life for us. But rather, Lord, Easter tells us of the resurrected saviour, of the one who now has gone away to a far place and who will come again crowned in glory and in power and righteousness. Lord, this is a day to excite us, to fill our hearts with joy. But Lord, until that day comes, may we be busy about the master's business. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to do that with your strength and your power. We ask in your name. Amen.